Welcome to the Mask on the Mountains, Dimensions of COVID-19 in Appalachia. I'm Sydney Bowles, and I will be your host this evening. You are about to hear a new documentary series from the 2020 Appalachian Media Institute. Seven stories from seven young local producers. Let's dive right in. Our first story comes from producer Nicole Lee, a 19-year-old Whitesburg resident and a legal studies major at Moorhead State University. This was Nicole's second summer with AMI. She plans to attend law school and become a licensed attorney. Nicole's story is entitled 608, College Students in the Pandemic. Start with breaking news at this hour. Within the last hour, Kentucky Governor Andy Beshear has announced the state has its first confirmed case of COVID-19, the coronavirus. That patient's currently in Lexington. He's being treated in a hospital in isolation. Governor Bashir has declared a state of emergency so the Commonwealth can get resources to fight the disease faster. To our Kentucky families out there that are nervous, this is what we've been preparing. Who did you tell first? Like, what did you say to them? Oh, like news of our campus closing? Yeah. Like, oh, well, actually, um, I was with you when we, I first got the email. And I remember I was I was a little shocked. Uh, but I was basically, I was basically like, well, at least I'll get to be, you know, around the house, around where all my old friends are again. Yeah. But at the same time, I was worried that uh, the college might not be able to handle online classes correctly, seeing as they had never done it before. March 13th was like the last day for everything. So I was in class and we had gotten an email, but the email originally just said that we were going to be out for two weeks and then come back. And then later on, I think it was over spring break or something like that. That's whenever they said that we weren't coming back and it was going to be completely online. My name is Logan Holcomb. Uh, as of the last semester, I went to Louisville, University of Louisville, their engineering school. My name is Chloe Mace and I go to Moorhead State University. This morning, because we are all working together and together both the group up here and all of us as Kentuckians are going to get through this. As of yesterday afternoon, uh, we have four confirmed cases of the novel coronavirus here in Kentucky. Uh, now, just because that may be uh, a few more cases than some states are reporting uh, does not indicate that Kentucky has been hit harder than other places. I believe it just means we've been very aggressive in our response. Uh, we have uh, two uh, people who have tested positive in Harrison. Um, I immediately lost my job. Um, they said that they were going to continue paying the work studies up until the end of the semester, which was great. But then they decided to only pay federal work studies until the end. And I'm an institutional. So I stopped getting paid the beginning of April. And uh, so then I was going to I filed for unemployment. Um, and I never got it. Like I filed it at the, at the, I think April 20th and I still haven't gotten it, even though I've gotten numerous letters and emails like about how I qualify and like, here's the amount of money that I'm supposed to get, but I've not seen a single cent. Um, and at this point I've just quit trying, but, uh, hopefully I get back pay because that's really terrible. I mean, I'm just a college student and just imagine if I had like a family and I was in that situation. The employment was under like a one-time scholarship uh, 
thing that they gave me as soon as I started the job under the understanding that they were taken away if I didn't continue to come to work, right? Um, when the COVID hit, uh, they didn't take away any of that scholarship, which I'm thankful for, but but we did still continue to work on uh, on an online platform, which was just something else I had to do on top of uh, managing the new online classwork and being home around uh, my parents who didn't know how to, um, how can I say it, uh, respect boundaries. <laughs> Do you feel like that environment was better than when you lived in a dorm? Like, did it affect you at all, like your schooling? Uh, it pro it was a big change because college was very different from high school and those were very different environments. And when I was in high school, I was with my parents and they, and you know, it didn't bother them to bother me during the day because I never really had a lot of homework or had to study for a lot to get by. But in college, um, at my dorm, I was there, you know, all the time studying. And the only time I would leave was to be either go to class or get like food or something. And, uh, being back at the house, uh, uh, my parents' house, they didn't really know, like, my new boundaries that I created for myself, like, the freedom, the taste of freedom I've got in college, they didn't really understand that, that new boundary, and so when I would need privacy, uh, or, or just like a, a peace of mind, some quiet or whatever. They didn't, if I wanted to tell them that it was a huge change for them and it was just difficult for them to try and grasp. And so I would be in my little office I made for doing schoolwork in, and they would just kind of barge in and not care about me doing my work or trying to be on my own doing my work. I just remember that was, that was the main thing I wanted. Uh, like that's when I think about uh, when I had to leave college and stuff, that's what I think about. I'm like, it sucked, and I, I hope I hope <laughs> no other kid had to deal with like having having their weird parents not adjust to college life. We believe, as we are here tonight, uh, that we currently have uh, 63 positive cases in Kentucky. Now that number um, will change, uh, and we uh, have to await labs confirming. Uh, those numbers with us as they come in. Do you feel like that affected you negatively or positively? And could you tell me why? Well, um, I already live at home, but honestly, I would say kind of negatively, purely because I'm kind of like a social person. I'm kind of an introvert, but I like going out and seeing my friends. And so not being able to see them for so long, it kind of took a toll on my mental health, which I feel like ultimately led to um, a negative aspect towards my online classes because I just had zero motivation to do anything and would like do assignments last minute and would stay up in the middle of the night trying to do work. Yeah, I would say overall it was pretty negative. The only, the only real positives about it is that it was a familiar environment so I wasn't like in a not only a city I didn't know, but a dorm room I I was only a year familiar with. I was back at my house, but uh, the fact that my parents had a really hard time struggling with my, you know, new school schedule, that was very negative. Harder news today is we have lost 12 new Kentuckians 
uh, to COVID-19. And that brings our total number uh, of folks that we have lost uh, to 224 with also one probable uh, death on, on top of, of that. Uh, so let's remember, uh, wherever we are and whatever we think about the speed of what we're um, doing, so this is a big question. Um, how has your mental health been during this time? That's, I don't, there was, there's been many a, um, what, what, what I could only describe as a breakdown. It made me go through questioning with my, with my career choice. You know, did I really want to follow through with my degree? Was I enjoying it? Because being home, uh, you know, I, and doing their like, uh, their weird experimental classwork, you know, it was not enjoyable in the slightest. So it made me wonder, like, if I if I didn't enjoy doing the work, like from my from my home or in any case, right? Like, would would the job in the end be worth it? Like, or would I enjoy it at all? Since I've been knocked out of Louisville, basically, I have to look at other colleges now, which is another thing I have to look at this summer. You know, after after I had to, you know, complete the previous semester online, I immediately had to start looking, uh, if I could still go to Louisville, if I could afford it, uh, if I could still, uh, go to Louisville knowing that there might be another, like, round two of COVID, um, should I go to another school like EKU or Moorhead or, or like, uh, or, you know, our local community college, it's, a it's a lot to think about. Honestly, I've been like kind of debating on just going completely and totally online because I this whole COVID thing has given me such anxiety because my mom is high risk and so I'm I'm not even worried about catching COVID myself. I'm just worried about giving it to her. And so I've been like worried about going out and seeing my friends and so whenever I come home I have this sense of guilt and I could only imagine just going to class every day with all these people not caring and wearing masks and it's like washing their hands or sanitizing that it's just going to spread easily and I don't want to be one of the people that gets it and brings it home to my mom whenever I was the one that was social distancing and taking care of myself. There was a couple of schools that they didn't close before COVID got to them. And so, you know, they had a, a lot of cases before they finally went, right? That's And I fear that uh, when you choose to go to a school that, you know, they have their classes in person and they're not fully prepared to, to shut the school down in case of uh, COVID cases. That's, uh, that's rough. It's going to be the big debate over the next couple of weeks, how and when to reopen schools. President Trump is pushing for in-class instruction this fall, but some people are pushing back on that idea. Right. It's an ongoing debate, and the president is really pushing local governments to reopen schools this fall. The president is now arguing that if schools are kept closed, it is for political reasons and not for health reasons. It's very important for our country. It's very important for the well-being of the student and the parents. So we're going to be putting a lot of pressure on open your schools in the fall. That is so callous of him. So callous. When we do it wrong, people die. Another six people have died from the novel coronavirus. There are ages ranging from 67 to 77. The state's death toll is now at 608. Wednesday's number of new reported infections is a slight uptick from Tuesday's 371 cases, making it the second largest daily increase since the first case was confirmed in Kentucky in early March. 
That was 608, College Students in the Pandemic, an original audio production by Nicole Lee of Whitesburg, Kentucky. Our next story comes from Sean Hall. Sean Hall is originally from Blackie, Kentucky. He's 20 years old, and right now he lives in Richmond, Kentucky, where he studies apparel and design at Eastern Kentucky University. In the future, he plans on starting his own independent fashion label, but in the meantime, he puts his vision into his unique personal style. This was his second summer with the Appalachian Media Institute. Now let's listen to Sean's story, Two Branches, Sports versus the Pandemic. Prior to every season, your thought is, I'm hoping to have a winning season. But now our thoughts are, I'm hoping to have a season. That's my friend Aiden Adams. He's a senior member of the track and soccer teams at Ledger County Central High School. He's worried about how COVID is going to affect his athletic plans. Your day-to-day life, you're meeting so many people. You don't know if they have corona or not, but when you go to practice, you, you might be haunted with the fact, like, should I even be here? Like, am I going to hurt somebody because of this? The school system made changes in order to preserve the health of student-athletes. Although safety is a top priority, canceling a season can be devastating for many athletes, and for some it can be a life-altering change. Well, if a coronavirus happened, uh, and I was a coach at that particular time, I would use extreme caution. I really would. My grandfather, Danny Hall, is a retired coach, and he's also a retired sports broadcaster and has been following the response in Kentucky. Because as I mentioned before, you don't want to take uh, a chance on young people's lives. Soccer practice started today, but the rule changes, I feel like that'll be a hurdle. We've got to be in like pods of 10 maximum, so you can't just be chilling with the entire soccer program. We're not even allowed to bring bags on the field right now. we got to be there ready, and we have to have masks in anything that's ours other than a water has to stay in the car. You just got to rewire your brain. You know, some of us have been doing this for years. I mean, I've been playing soccer. It's not been like my 10th year. I'm going to have to relearn the things I learned when I was like five. It's like the world just stopped you, and that's probably a huge mental hurdle right there. Imagine working so hard, and you're not the one who quit. The other people made you quit. But, I mean, when you think about it, there is money on the line. because scholarships, jobs, coaching, you know. If there's no sports, some people are going to be out of it certain chunk of their paycheck, you know. So imagine being a child that moved to play their senior year at a good, say, basketball team, right? That would put them in college. That's gone now, you know. I did coach some basketball in Lexington uh, at the junior high school down there. And uh, the senior year usually is when the Athletes do their best, and now recruiters are not going to be able to see these athletes at, at their very best. Some colleges are starting to review the stat sheets for uh, their junior year. Your opportunities are limited because you won't be as skilled as you would be as a senior. Well, the colleges and universities that would uh, are prospective uh, recruiters of these high school athletes, all they can do is pretty much depend on the information that was available to them. Watching the film itself is not reliable enough. You could get an idea from that, but there's a lot of things that you would have to have considered more than just watching some kid play on film. That gives you an idea of his uh, athletic abilities, but there's a little more to it than that. Yeah, and that goes back to reviewing the junior tapes, you know. Your chance of getting a scholarship might be slimmer now. It's really making me weigh academics over sport. 
like we may have to wear a mask all day at school and be around other people, but we won't have to at sports. It really just it really splits them right down the middle. You know, no longer think that it's just school. It's like two branches. I'm Sean Hall, a member of the electric community. As a former athlete myself, I sympathize with students whose sports have been affected by the virus. I originally thought about how upset I would be if I were in their shoes, but I'm realizing it's more than that. Most like me, these athletes' love for the game is much greater than the obstacles put in front of them. They accept that the virus is slowing down the game, just as long as the game doesn't stop. That was Two Branches, Sports versus a Pandemic by Sean Hall. You're listening to A Mask on the Mountains, Dimensions of COVID-19 in Appalachia. We're going to keep moving right on to our third story. This one's called Behind Closed Doors During Quarantine by Jamie Shepard. Jamie's 17 and a rising senior at Perry County Central High School. This is Jamie's second year with AMI. Jamie's interested in pursuing a career in pharmacy or a different area of medicine. Once again, behind closed doors during quarantine. Along with the pandemic, there have been many struggles with our day-to-day life. Whether it be adjusting to being in our own homes 24-7 or trying to stay safe while working as an essential worker, we can all agree that it's been challenging. While we are dealing with these problems, others are facing even worse obstacles, such as domestic violence or sexual assault. I talked with Tara Combs, director of the Rising Center, to see how the pandemic has affected these survivors. Initially, I guess around the second half of March, we didn't get any calls. We were dead. We were like, what has happened? And I'm assuming that is because people were too scared to go to the hospital. They were afraid that they would contract the virus um, if they went to the hospital. The Rising Center is a place where men, women, and children can go to receive help if they are suffering from sexual or domestic abuse. It's dedicated to supporting victims while helping them reclaim their lives from their perpetrators. According to Tara Combs, the amount of calls are up by 25% compared to before the pandemic. Um, The end of April and the entire month of May, we saw a significant increase in calls for sexual assault. Um, Children and adults. I would say definitely that conditions due to COVID-19 have contributed, certainly, to this increase. Combs says quarantine isn't the only way that the pandemic has led to abuse and violence. Some of what we were hearing was that if, if they lived in the home with their perpetrator, some of those perpetrators had um, obtained their stimulus check at that point, and maybe they abused substances. And when they had money to get those substances, their aggression and controlling behavior increased and therefore ended up in in a sexual assault. Also, we've had some that did have um, a substance use history, and because they had access to that money from the stimulus check, found themselves relapsing and in a situation that that compromised their safety that also resulted in a sexual assault. Other things that we were hearing from survivors were that I've been so isolated for such a period of time and no one else has laid eyes on me to see what's going on. And it was either I leave right now and go get help or I'm going to be killed. 
And so at that point coming to us, they were asking, you know, us to help them get into the safe house, which we did do, you know, do. So that, so that was some of what we were hearing from survivors. Even though having face-to-face visits with victims is still needed at times, the Rising Center makes sure to follow safety precautions. Initially, when folks were presenting at the hospital, we were doing telephone advocacy, and we are still doing that through July, but there are certain instances when the hospital will call us and say that the survivor would rather have someone in person or we would rather have you here in person. And in that instance, we go ahead and go on out to the hospital and we do um, use full PPE and the hospital, well, at least um, ARH and Hazard and in Whitesburg have been very accommodating to us and providing us with PPE and giving us the space and the tools to do what we need to do to, to advocate for that survivor. She goes on to say that even in this current situation, you can still get help. We just appreciate um, the time to get the word out. So we're not gone. We've always been here through the whole thing. And we're not going to go away. And uh, we're here for anybody who needs us. The Rising Center serves the people of the entire Kentucky River region, which includes Breathitt, Knott, Lee, Leslie, Fletcher, Owsley, Perry, and Wolf Counties. The number to the 24-hour crisis line for survivors of domestic violence or sexual assault is 1-800-262-7491. There will always be help for those in need, even in these uncertain times. That was Jamie Shepard with Behind Closed Doors During Quarantine. You're listening to A Mask on the Mountains, Dimensions of COVID-19 in Appalachia. Our next story by a young local producer is uh, from Hannah Adams. Hannah is 21 years old. She's from Letcher, Kentucky. This is her fourth summer working with the Appalachian Media Institute. She's currently a senior at Moorhead State University, where she studies convergent media. Upon graduation, Adams hopes to continue working with Apple Shop and creating a variety of media. Hannah produced a piece entitled Foster Care in a Pandemic World. The state of Kentucky recently reached an all-time high of 10,000 children in the foster care system. For years, the system has become increasingly overwhelmed. And then, coronavirus hit the United States. Now to growing concerns about the deadly coronavirus officially hitting the U.S. Breaking news. The first death from coronavirus here in the United States. A record for the second straight day more than, listen to this, 39,000 new infections. And suddenly... Everything changed. As far as I can tell, they're still being pretty strict with trying to make sure that everything that can happen virtually regarding foster children does happen virtually. That's Alexia Ott, a single foster parent who has seen the many impacts of the pandemic on the foster care system. I've also seen these impacts firsthand. My mother, Melina Adams, was in the process of adopting our second foster placement when the pandemic began. We only found out a week before adoption day that, no, this adoption's not going to happen. All the dockets have been cleared. We were able to reschedule the adoption to be held on a Zoom call. But when storms knocked out power and internet across eastern Kentucky, we had to adjust again. On adoption day, we ended up going to the Walmart parking lot, got on our Zoom call, and even the judge, he was like, 
my secretary told me what all's going on at your house. Where exactly are you all for this phone call? He said, because I can tell you're in a vehicle. And I was like, we're sitting in the Walmart parking lot. And he, he laughed so hard. And he was like, times have really changed. We're all just doing the best that we can. He said, just glad that you all could actually do this. The pandemic is impacting both biological and foster parents in a variety of ways. Many parents who worked outside of the home are now living double lives, attempting to balance work and family responsibilities at the same time. I told a friend I felt like I could either be a good mother or I could be a good employee, but I couldn't do both. And so there were days when I just focused on what he needed. And there were days when I had grant deadlines to do and I had conference calls and he was just watching PBS a lot. Unfortunately, working from home is not an option for all parents. In a region that is already lacking in local childcare services, the pandemic has brought many difficult decisions for Eastern Kentucky parents who are essential workers. Some parents I know are choosing just to completely isolate themselves from their children. That would have to be a very hard decision to make. But it's also a hard decision to make, I think, if I was working full-time to come home in the afternoons and possibly have that chance that I've brought something home. As states begin to remove restrictions and the rate of cases continue to rise, there is much concern for the future of the foster care system and the well-being of children in need. There are so many people right now that are afraid to do foster parenting because they're afraid of bringing a child into a home that possibly has been exposed to COVID. So I don't think a lot of people right now are thinking, okay, this is the perfect time for me to be a foster parent, when it probably is. What does months of quarantine and isolation mean for children's such like impossibly dangerous and unhealthy living environments? A lot of the mandatory reporters like doctors and teachers and other public servants aren't seeing these kids regularly, so they aren't reporting it. Kids aren't coming into care. I hope I'm wrong, but I say that when all this is over with, we're going to see an increase in the amount of kids who go into care. And unfortunately, I'm afraid we won't see the increase that we need in the people who are becoming foster parents. What will the future of foster care look like following the pandemic? The stress that we've seen with this pandemic is not going to disappear. This virus isn't going to disappear. And even after we get a vaccine, the effects of this pandemic are going to last. They're going to be seen in foster children. They're going to be seen in single parents and in biological families. It's going to take a while to recover from this. In Eastern Kentucky, I'm Hannah Adams. That was Foster Care in a Pandemic World by Hannah Adams. You're listening to A Mask on the Mountains, Dimensions of COVID-19 in Appalachia. This is a documentary series from the 2020 Appalachian Media Institute class, Seven Stories from Seven Young Local Producers. And we're going to jump right back in. Up next, we have our fifth story of the evening. This one is by Madison Buchanan, who's 19 years old and lives in Moorhead, Kentucky. She's originally from the Letcher area. Madison moved to Moorhead to attend MSU and study convergent media. She's been working with Appalachian Media Institute for two summers now, and she's been with Apple Shop for nearly three years. Madison has a love for media making and intends to continue working in this field. 
She's particularly interested in activism and capturing the thoughts of people who need to be heard. Madison's story is a prepaid call for help, prisons, and a pandemic. Even for those of us who are able to follow the CDC guidelines, COVID-19 has brought so much fear, sickness, and death. What is the result when people are confined in a place where social distancing is nearly impossible and access to the correct resources is rare? A recent study published by researchers at John Hopkins University found that the COVID case rate for prisoners was 5.5 times higher than the U.S. population rate. I wanted to hear firsthand what it's like to be locked up during this pandemic. Through a mutual friend, I got connected with Jacob Schaus, an inmate at the Greensville County Correctional Center in Jarrett, Virginia. Hello, this is a prepaid debit call from an inmate at the Virginia Department of Corrections, Greensville Correctional and Work Center. To accept this call, press zero. To refuse this call, hang up or press this call is from a collection facility and is subject to monitoring and recording. Hello? Hello? Madison? Yes, this is Madison. Hi. Hi, this is Jacob. I want to thank you so much for helping me out with this and um, talking to me. It really means a lot. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. Um, I mean, I'm all about, you know, new friends, new advocates, activists, anything positive. So first, can you tell me a little bit about your situation, where you are, and what it's like in there? Oh, yeah, yeah. This is um, Jacob Schaus, 1101441. I'm at Greensville Correctional Center. I'm in a actual licensed mental health unit, and um, we're in Jarrett, Virginia, and there's the most cases of COVID-19 are recorded here at Greensville and at Dillon Correctional Center and Haynesville Correctional Center. The Virginia Department of Corrections reports nearly 3,000 inmates and staff were tested last week at the prison. 192 inmates and 52 staff members had positive results. Prior to testing, only two inmates had symptoms. Yeah, I actually wrote a, a piece about, about, about it, but they didn't, uh, I sent it to a bunch of people out there if they wouldn't let it go out. So they're censoring all of your emails? Yes, yes. You want me to read it saying? Yes, please, absolutely. It's entitled, Mentally Ill Amid a Pandemic of Incarceration, Infection, and Helplessness. This is due to the pandemic subjugation and overall dehumanization of prisoners while society turns a blind eye. Living amid this COVID-19 pandemic inside the walls, the prison walls, razor wire plantations, reestablishes helplessness in an exacerbated form where one's life takes an obvious backseat to prison bureaucracy, modern-day slavery, misleading the general public into a false sense of security that their incarcerated loved ones are safe and their well-being the overarching priority. It's less like wondering if I'll get sick, trying to stay safe, and more like wondering when I'm going to get sick and if I'll even recover safely. Certainly, many administrative memorandums have been circulated implementing new daily operational changes under the guise of safety protocols and protective practices. However, I have yet to have access to sanitation chemicals four times a day to sanitize myself nor allowed to have my ill-fitting sneeze guard washed regularly or exchanged with a new one or any type of appropriate mask, much less PPE. 
I am constantly subjected to exposure by cross-contamination as prison workers as well as staff are allowed to roam freely throughout all separate housing units from their own where there were positive cases of COVID-19 into other places that there's been no reported cases. You have one minute remaining. They've been allowed in and out of our cells at times despite some of us in a licensed mental health unit having a single cell. And we are on an egregious lockdown schedule, especially for us prisoners in a licensed mental health unit where extreme isolation exacerbates underlying illnesses. There exist special requirements and guidelines for licensed facilities set forth by state and federal mental health authorities that are not being adhered to, primarily due to us prisoners being voiceless and utterly helpless under a repressed thumb. To this day, this was written on June 1st and sent out on June 1st and it's never gotten to anyone. So they just censored it and blocked it and never told me that they did. Did you get that? Hello? Thank you for using GTL. That was Madison Buchanan with a prepaid call for help, Prisons in a Pandemic. You're listening to A Mask on the Mountains, original audio stories by young people from Appalachia. Up next, we have a story from Abby Infis, an 18-year-old from Whitesburg, Kentucky. Abby's a sophomore at Alice Lloyd College, majoring in communications and minoring in sociology. This year makes her second year of AMI. She wants to pursue media as a career, and AMI is the first step towards that for her. Now, let's hear Abby's piece, Symptom of Slavery, Racism in Healthcare During a Pandemic. COVID-19 has brought to light a lot of issues with our country, but the one that is still not talked about enough is the prejudice in our healthcare system. This pandemic has shown time and time again how the system favors white people. I've talked to three women to help me explain this issue and hopefully open people's eyes to the truth about our healthcare system. My name is Bailey Ambergy. I graduated from the University of Louisville this May with a degree in global politics um, and a minor in criminal justice. Uh, this is Lori Andress. I am an assistant professor of public health at West Virginia University School of Public Health. My name is Danielle King. I am the director of equity and inclusion at Hazard Community Technical College. As far as healthcare in particular goes, um, there are a lot of disparities faced by Black folks. Um, and I think people in Appalachia especially should be understanding of this considering the health disparities that we face in rural areas. Um, it's similar for black neighborhoods in the middle of the city. I mean, there are no hospitals nearby. There um, are very few clinics. Um, often black folks are not granted the same types of jobs with the same type of insurance coverage um, because of employment discrimination. We see high rates of mortality for black women giving birth, for black people in general, uh, because of disparities within communities. And often pain is not seen as real for black people. And medical folks are often taught that black people don't feel pain the same way. And, and it's a symptom of slavery because of course, when white people were trying to ignore the fact that black people were humans, it made them feel better to think, oh, black folks don't experience pain in the same way because they're mules. Well, that's completely obviously false. And unfortunately, it has translated through the medical system today and is, in fact, even taught in medical schools today. How does racism operate on our bodies? What does that do to people who live under a system that constantly threatens them with racism? 
high levels of stress and anxiety, chronic stress and anxiety, that turns up certain levels of hormones in the body. In the case of Black people in the United States, it's not just daily threats or feelings of racism, exclusion, but your parents felt that way. Your grandparents felt that way. Your great-great-parents felt that way. And we now know that those experiences get passed down through the body at the cellular level. We have studies that show that African Americans' bodies never lower those levels of stress hormones. When those stress hormones are constantly going through your body day after day, year after year, African Americans are thought to have weaker bodies. Our bodies are just more susceptible to disease, to stress emotional distress. Black women and femmes and birth givers are often more likely to die um, during the process of giving birth. They're more likely to not receive the same type of care during their pregnancy that would help um, to keep the baby healthy and themselves. You know, that's why so many black women turn to doulas and home births and things like that, because it is literally unsafe for so many of us to be in hospitals. I have definitely seen racial prejudice throughout COVID-19, particularly when it comes to the enforcement of mask wearing, when it comes to, you know, what what parties and things are being broken up. And obviously, there's going to be a disparity in treatment and testing as well, because uh, treatment and testing happens where at hospitals and where are hospitals not in black neighborhoods. So um, that's also a huge issue. I've seen the reports about African-Americans turning up in places seeking either testing or treatment, and they've been turned away or sent home. Um, I've seen those reports that indicate that African Americans have done this in such high numbers and been turned away that we now see the, the results of that. African Americans are more likely to have the virus. Um, when they have the virus, they're more likely to be sicker and they're more likely to die. Most of the people who have died are black and brown because of how many comorbidities they have. And so I think that in terms of that population, the scales are, are weighted heavier on their end. African-Americans are 2.5 times likely to actually acquire the virus. And then when you look at their access to healthcare or their symptoms that they may be experiencing, um, they're less likely to be hurt. And now since COVID has permeated domestic and internationally, um, I think that there are some inherent issues there. Uh, healthcare has changed as we know it. Um, but those who are marginalized and that did not have access or had poor access or were non-existent, um, it, it's, it's a bit harsh for them. And how can white people use their privilege to help? Now, speaking out is obviously a huge thing, educating yourself and all of that. But another thing that I think white people don't realize that they can do that is so helpful is donate your money. To, uh, to hospitals, to, to creating testing sites in black neighborhoods. Do that yourself if you see that it's needed. Donate your money to organizers who are working on this firsthand. 
um, donate your money to, to reparations, to black folks in general, who you see struggling, who you see suffering, especially um, black queer folks, black trans folks, women and femmes. If donation is not an option for you, spread the word. Tell people that may not know. Have these conversations with those who are unaware. Everything helps, no matter how little. We cannot dismantle the prejudice in healthcare overnight, but we can't give up. That was Abby Infus with Symptom of Slavery, Racism in Healthcare During a Pandemic. You're listening to WMMT 88.7 Mountain Community Radio. And right now we're bringing you a series of original audio stories by Appalachian young people. Our final story was produced by Alyssa Helton, a 19-year-old from Cowan, Kentucky. Alyssa is a sophomore at the University of Kentucky studying psychology and social work. This makes her second year doing AMI. She's also taken part in Apple Shop projects such as Hands Across the Hills. Alyssa enjoys documenting other stories and ensuring that they're heard. She believes that media making will help her in future endeavors and hopes to continue working with Apple Shop in the future. Alyssa's piece is entitled Cancelled Culture. During a normal summer in eastern Kentucky, the heels and hollers are full of lively music. The region has a rich, rich culture for putting on festivals and celebrations. Due to COVID-19 spreading rapidly in the region, many of these traditions have been either cancelled, postponed, or converted to virtual outlets. Many people feel as if their culture has been put on pause. Cowan Creek Mountain Music School happens right in my backyard. Every year, hundreds of musical souls come together to enrich the small community with traditional tunes. Sadly, it was canceled this year due to the virus. Jim Bennett, a fiddle student who has come to Cowan for 11 years, tells us about the joy this program brings. Well, um, my friend Joe Rafferty is the one who first mentioned it, and it sounded so good for us students to gather in small groups with a teacher for a whole week uh, of lessons to really improve and expand on, on our uh, knowledge of, of whatever instrument we're working on, in my case, fiddle. And then everything else that, that's a part of it, the, the camaraderie and the, uh, the jam sessions, the, the dinners and lunches and, and the square dances, it just all fits together beautifully. Bennett is one of the many people who feels as if he has missed out on the tradition this year. Very much so. Uh, a terrible loss for us and for for the Cowan community, too. I know they, uh, they benefit from our being down there, you know, the, and, and Whitesburg economically from whatever it is, 150 or 200 of us coming down for a week. We students and teachers and administrators of Cowan Creek Mountain Music all have missed out terribly from from this uh, pandemic preventing us from, from coming together. To him, Cowan was one of those big events that fell into cancellation. It was just another blow in a whole string of cancellations of various events and gatherings and get-togethers that's been going on. We, we were just seeing it was like a string of dominoes falling, and Gallon Creek was one of those big dominoes that we saw that coming, and sure enough, it fell, and it was a blow, especially a big one, because a whole week-long thing, it's probably the biggest blow of, of all the events that, that, uh, that were canceled for me. One local festival that has been affected by the virus is Sea Time on the Cumberland. 
Much like Cowan Creek, people come far and wide to enjoy the luscious sounds of traditional music, view or purchase art, learn a square dance or two, watch films made by local filmmakers, or enjoy some good food. Brandon Gent, a Letcher County native, tells us what Seed Time is all about. I've been going to Seed Time for several, several years now, and that truly does feel like the kickoff to like to festival season, to summer, to like to brighter weather, to to being with folks. But Sea Time isn't just about traditional music. It incorporates punk music into the mix as well. I've I've loved all of Sea Time, but what I have always specifically loved has been the Sea Time Punk Show. I have a lot of friends and have been part of the punk scene since I was in high school, and it's always like different every time. Brandon says he loves how Sea Time brings two entirely different communities together. One of the neatest feelings, something I talk about a lot when it comes to community work is like how there are different communities within communities and like the seed time festival is an example of that. Like you can stand on the street between Apple shop and the Boone building and you can hear old time music playing at the same time that punk music is playing. Some of the, the punk show youngins will go and get food or maybe we'll like go listen to old time or maybe some of the old time folks will come listen to the punk show for a bit. For the most part, we're two very different sides of one community that are going on at the same time for the same event. And that always feels really special. And it reminds me of like of how like multifaceted Wattsburg, Letcher County, Eastern Kentucky, Appalachia is. Like it's a it's a beautiful example of that and I like being a part of that. Michella Phipps, a local punk guitarist, says Sea Time stands out among the festivals she's played. I wasn't used to playing very, very large festivals. You know, I was used to the smaller ones that we have here locally, like the Sea Time Punk Festival. Uh, that's one that I always frequented. Sea Time was converted into a virtual format for the year. Mount Heritage is probably one of the biggest festivals in the Whitesburg community. I've only missed like three Mountain Heritage Festivals in my life, like including the year of my birth. Like I was born in July and my mother took me to Mountain Heritage in September. It was always a big thing. Even if you know what to expect, it's always felt as something special. It's always been like a gathering place. It feels like on a normal day, you can go somewhere out in town and like throw a stone and I've hit someone I know. You say hi to somebody, but during Mountain Heritage, it's like you see everybody. It feels like it gets, I don't want to say the majority, but a really large portion of our community out and like celebrating and being with each other. Much like Seed Time, Mountain Heritage unites the whole community together. I think events like that bring folks together that otherwise wouldn't be together or couldn't be together for whatever reason or refuse to be together for whatever reason. I think that's a special thing. Mountain Heritage falls into the list of cancellations for the year. Along with the loss of festivals, people have been experiencing other blows due to COVID-19. Machella tells us how the virus has affected her musically. From one cancellation to the next, her schedule was majorly impacted and kept her from playing at other festivals in Kentucky. Usually pretty busy. You know, every weekend there's something to do, uh, either a show to go to that you are supporting your friends at, or ones that you're a part of yourself. And it just, it feels weird to not have uh, any of those happening and just more cancellations happening even up into next year. In what ways has the virus affected you? 
Well, it definitely put a huge dent in my income. Uh, I don't really have full-time employment being a musician. And so not having all those shows lined up and, you know, there were tours that were going to happen. Tire tour just had to not, we were in the middle of, you know, confirming dates and then a lot of the restrictions came. And then it was like everything just stopped. I mean, and so just imagine that not being enough anymore. Like it did just not being a possibility. Brandon and Machilla both grieved the loss of festivals this year. And to Brandon, festivals are a gravitational pull that unites everyone. Most festivals around here is like people come in for them too. There are people that come from out of state. There have been people that have come internationally. Eastern Kentucky's normal cultural whirlwind has been put on pause and it's not clear for how long. It's hard for us to picture how things are going to be going forward. This pandemic is, uh, shows no signs of ending. We can only see a few months ahead, and there's no assurance that the months farther down the line, even a year from now, we, we, don't, we really can't foretell how much improved it's going to be or if it's going to be improved. So we can only hope that things will get better and that we'll be able to come back together again. Hoping for better days ahead, I'm Melissa Hilton in Whitesburg, Kentucky. That was Alyssa Hilton with Cancel Culture. And you've been listening to A Mask on the Mountains, Dimensions of COVID in Appalachia, a documentary series from the summer of 2020 Appalachian Media Institute. Hi, everybody. My name is Willa Johnson. I'm the director for the Appalachian Media Institute. We are part of Apple Shop. We are part of documenting what it looks like to live in Appalachia. And when things began to shift this summer and the spring, we realized that we weren't going to be able to meet in person. But what we decided to do was to capture this. This is a moment worth documenting. This is a moment worth capturing. So that is how we got to a virtual summer documentary institute. The stars aligned and we were able to bring in a guest educator for the summer, Benny Becker, who really led the way in helping make these stories possible. So I want to close this up with just saying a big thanks to the people who make this summer possible. You know, we pay our young people because we want every young person to be able to have the opportunity to participate in a program like this. And so I want to just thank the Kentucky Arts Council, the Apple Shop Production and Education Fund, the MacArthur Foundation, the Mary Reynolds Babcock Foundation, Glen C. Erig Scholarship, and the E.T. Collinsworth Scholarship, as well as the many individual donors who donate throughout the year. And if you want to donate, you can check us out at appleshop.org. It's A-P-P-A-L-S-H-O-P, and there's a green um, support button there at the top, and you just designate to AMI. That's a wrap for the 2020 Summer Documentary Institute. Thank you all.